All right, well, let's dive in here to Luke 4. We're going to finish up this chapter this morning. And uh, we've shifted from our last series, which was about the identity of Christ the Messiah. Now we're talking about the authority of Christ the Messiah. And last week, Jeff talked about scriptural authority. And that passage, remember, he's in a synagogue and he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And it is testifying to who he is and why he is here. So basically, Jesus was appealing to that as scriptural authority that he had. And as the writer of the word, he's called the living word, he was able to do that. This week, we're going to transition into spiritual authority. And let me just sum up the morning, and then we'll get into the text. Basically, Jesus is going to present himself as having authority over two things that really thwart humanity, demons and disease. Demons and disease. Now, I know as I say that, that can create a lot of thoughts and questions and that might make you uncomfortable. It may make you confused. I don't know what your background is and all of your experience, but when you hear demons especially, that can be a little bit startling. So it's in the Bible. We wanna make sure that we don't bring our experience to this in terms of that's not what defines what's true and isn't true about the spiritual realm. We wanna learn from the Bible what is true about the spiritual realm. So that's where we're gonna go this morning. We're gonna see Jesus in action. Now, one of the principles that I have tried to live by as I get into this whole conversation around spiritual realities is that I want to avoid making too much or too little of the spiritual realm or activity that's related to it. I don't want to make too much of it, and I don't want to make too little of it. I want to be biblical, and I just want to live in reality. So here's the reality of the first century, Jesus Christ in a place called Capernaum. It's a demonic dispute, beginning in verse 31. Luke writes this, He, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. There's our word. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, I want you to imagine being in a synagogue, a place of worship. Jesus is teaching authoritatively. And all of a sudden, this man stands up and shouts out confronting Jesus. Now, we don't experience that much, especially in North America. But that's, again, where I want to caution us not to bring our experience to the scriptures, but let the scriptures talk to us about a spiritual reality that I promise you is as real as anything in this room. And we want to live in that reality. Um, demons are mentioned, okay? So what are those? 
I don't know how much study you've done in that. I don't know how much you've looked into the scriptures. Let me give you some places to go to, to think more deeply about this. Demons are actually created beings. They were originally angels. So before God created the heavens and the earth, he created angels. And the most powerful angel of all was Lucifer. Lucifer and about a third of the angelic host basically decided, just like we saw in the three circles diagram, they wanted to go their own way. They wanted to do their own thing. They wanted to have the authority that God had as creator. And so as a result, kind of to make it short and sweet, they got kicked out of heaven. And from that group of fallen angels and Lucifer, you have spiritual forces of darkness called demons. Now, here's some things about them that are helpful for us to know. First of all, okay, these are spirit beings, so they are localized, which means they are not omnipresent. So God is, he can be everywhere at the same time, right? Demons cannot. They are localized. They are in a particular place at one time. They are intelligent, but they're not omniscient. They can't know everything like God knows everything. They can only know what has been revealed to them just like us. Lastly, they are powerful, make no mistake, but they're not omnipotent. They don't have limitless power. They have very limited power, particularly in comparison to God. So those are realities about this uh, spiritual host. Now in this passage, they know who Jesus is. They recognize it. They testify to it. It's true. But what we know about them is they don't respect Jesus. They don't honor him or worship him. They are completely in defiance of him as they're going about doing whatever it is they're doing. So Jesus is confronting that. And another part of this scene is we have demonic possession. I know that's Weird. Maybe you've never seen anything like that before. Maybe you've never encountered anything like that. We certainly don't want Hollywood to inform our understanding of what possession is. So here's a simple definition. Possession is a domineering influence of an evil spiritual being within a person. And when you hear the word evil, I want you to think as darkly as you can about it. I want you to think sinister. I want you to think hatred. See, we, we sort of um, dress things up and make them nicer and cuter and, and more convenient or more comfortable than they really are. And that's where the Bible tells us that there are these two realms, these two kingdoms, and they are absolutely opposed to one another. And so when you have possession taking place, you have a demon inhabiting a person who hates that person and wants nothing less than the destruction of their life. Are you getting the picture? That's what Jesus is encountering in this scene, all right? And as he goes into that, he speaks to it with authority. Now, I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. We do need to understand that Israel... If you read your Old Testament, you're not going to see a lot of uh, information about Satan or demons. There are some references to Satan. Let me just mention those. Um, First Chronicles 
mentions him, the book of Job, he's mentioned in there, and then also in Zechariah. We learn of Satan in the garden in Genesis 3 through the serpent, uh, and then we hear of him again in the book of Revelation. So the Bible begins and ends with this enemy of God, a very, very real um, opposition to the, the activity of God. It's called biblically the kingdom of darkness. So I wanna tell you a little bit about that and then we're gonna see how Jesus confronts it. First John 5, 19. This is your biblical theology of the kingdom of darkness. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world. Now God's in control. He's sovereign. Nothing happens outside of what he allows, but he has given the kingdom of darkness a measure of influence in this world, so much so that John writes, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, the God of this world, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So that is the objective of the kingdom of darkness. Colossians 1.13, God the Father has delivered us, that is those who have entrusted their life to Christ, as I spoke of a few minutes ago when I was going through the three circles. God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So there is this shift that takes place in the moment of conversion where you go from one realm to another, very definitively. Then lastly, Ephesians 6, 12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So from a biblical perspective, this is a very real thing that we want to think carefully about. We don't want to walk in fear of, but we certainly wanna have a good dose of healthy respect. Let me give you two books that I think uh, are very helpful in uh, explaining more about these realms. One is called Invisible War by a guy named Chip Ingram. Fantastic book about uh, spiritual warfare and the dynamics that we're talking about today. And then another very interesting book written by C.S. Lewis is called Screwtape Letters. And uh, it's actually, a, it's, it's fiction, but he basically writes this book as if there is a head demon training a, a newbie demon on how to deal with us, how to deceive us, how to hurt us, how to mess up our lives and all that. And so you see this interaction, but it's very insightful because there's places where you go, huh, I wonder if I bought into that deception that might actually be going on in the spiritual realm. So very, very helpful. Here is an awesome way to think about this whole picture. And this comes from Invisible War and Chip Ingram. He says, if you wanna understand the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of the beloved son and how we integrate that into everyday life, we need to think about living in a battleground so that there is always a battle raging in us and around us. Now, what we tend to do, because we don't like the idea of living in wartime all the time, we think of life as a playground. 
So we're looking for entertainment and fun and ease and comfort and that kind of stuff. But, but our greatest danger is living in a battleground as if it's a playground, right? We're gonna miss a lot of stuff that we need to catch. So that's why a passage like this is so helpful because it reminds us what is really going on. So let's see Jesus address this demonic possession. You might think of it like a hostage situation, okay? So you have a demon inhabiting a person and this demon is threatening Jesus publicly, um, probably in response to the teaching that Jesus has been doing. And he essentially says, Jesus, I know who you are. I know you came to oppose spirits like us. You came to destroy us. So here's what you need to know. If you destroy me, I'm gonna take this guy down with me. That's the setting. Now look at what Jesus does, verse 35. It's kind of like a sniper taking out a, a criminal. Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down, that is the man in their midst, he came out of him having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. They're a little bit surprised. And then verse 37, reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So demonic power in the presence of Jesus is totally benign. He literally speaks a word. He commands the spiritual forces of darkness to, to do what he tells them to do and they do it. They obey perfectly. They have no choice. They must respond to his direction. And it makes perfect sense. God threw Satan out of heaven because of his rebellion. So certainly Jesus ought to be able to throw a demon out of a human being, right? So that, that's the dynamic that's happened here. Let's notice the response of the people that are there that witnessed this and began to hear about it. We're told that they were amazed, that they were curious. I mentioned surprised. And then they start what we could call good gossip. They begin to spread the word of Jesus' power. The most important thing to realize, though, is that amazement doesn't constitute belief. There's something really missing here that should have shown up had they believed in a life-saving kind of way. They're missing repentance. Remember, that's been the, the message. We, we've already gotten that from the book of Luke. Uh, John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the kingdom of God is invading the kingdom of darkness. And the way that you align yourself with that is to repent and believe, right? That's what we've been hearing. So it's absent here. And, and that is really good for us to recognize that just seeing it and perhaps even feeling a sense of amazement or surprise, that's not the same as belief. Now, let me read to you something that's sort of interesting about Capernaum, this place where Jesus had this whole interaction. Here's a description of Capernaum in Matthew 11. And this tells us that while there was amazement, there was not repentance and belief. Uh, it says this, you Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? you will be brought down to Hades. 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable. This is amazing given everything else that we're even gonna look at in a moment. It will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Despite how amazed and surprised and curious and you know, spreading the good gossip around, despite all of that, these people still stayed in a place of rebellion. So this spiritual work needs to go beyond just an outer observation. It needs to get into the heart. But Jesus certainly presents himself, or at least Luke presents him this way, as having the authority to do that kind of work in the heart of a person. We go from there to another confrontation, uh, this is in the same day Jesus and, his, Jesus and his companions leave the synagogue and they head over to Simon's house. This is Simon Peter. And uh, they encounter another uh, issue. I mentioned earlier demons and disease. So this is gonna be disease and this might be the first instance biblically we have of home health care. Jesus is gonna move in and address sickness. Verse 38 says, he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And that wasn't just like, oh, she's got a little temperature. This is, this is a serious illness, and that's kind of the best way to translate it biblically. So she has a very high fever. It's a serious deal, so serious that it says they appealed to Jesus on her behalf. They're saying, Jesus, can you do something about this? Verse 39, he stood over her and rebuked the fever, just like he rebuked the demon. And it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. So we're learning that Jesus not only has spiritual authority in the realms of the kingdom of darkness, opposing demonic forces, but he also has authority to address physical ailments, which would also be a result of the fall, a result of sin, of the curse. Now, I want to be careful. It's not that she sinned and so she was sick. It's that we live in a broken world where we encounter sickness, right? And Jesus is demonstrating that he has the authority to address that, to correct that, to heal that. Um, I love what Chuck Swindoll says, Luke takes great care to demonstrate that the Lord possessed authority over personified evil, which would be the demons, and the problem of evil, which is human suffering. That's a great distinction to make. He can address both. And it is interesting in this instance, and also perhaps with the demon-possessed man, that Luke is, is beginning to sort of show his cards. He is setting up Jesus as the Messiah to the marginalized. See, this is a woman. And a lot of the other religions and culture of the day, it just wouldn't have been that big of a deal. I, I don't mean this. I'm just saying it's just a woman. But this woman was incredibly important to Jesus so important that he comes right to her and he sees this affliction that she has and he, he stands over her and over that illness and speaks into it, speaks it out of her and restores her with great compassion and care. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture 
of Christ's compassionate heart. So we see this woman, a diseased woman and a a demon-possessed man, released from their affliction. They are both unharmed. So again, we're seeing what Jesus can do in a person's life and they are restored. And that is a picture of true power and authority. That is the message Luke wants us to get. Now, have you guys ever heard the phrase, um, oh, what is it? It's um, absolute power corrupts absolutely. You guys heard of that? So just imagine, here's Jesus. He's a man. He's the son of God, but he has absolute power. We might expect corruption, but we actually see the complete opposite of that. We see incredible compassion and care, and it's outlined in verse 40 and 41. This is hands-on ministry, and I want you to really get the sense of the personal ministry of Jesus. Look at this. Now, when the sun was setting on that same day, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. So very simply, this was on the Sabbath. And during a Sabbath day, you could not, if you were a a Jew, you couldn't do work. And they considered bringing a sick person to a rabbi, to Jesus, that that would have constituted work. So you weren't allowed to do that until the sun set. But when the sun set, you could bring him. And man, they came. Throngs of people came to Jesus with those who were possessed and those who were diseased. And it's very interesting to me that Luke is very particular about specifying that Jesus laid hands on each one of them. And I think what we're meant to get there is that wasn't some kind of mystical thing, which is kind of how it gets portrayed these days. Just think about all of the sickness, the disease, the, all of that in front of Jesus. And he puts his hands right on it. Unafraid, absolute authority. He, he moves into that place with great compassion and care to restore those folks to a life without those afflictions. So it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of Jesus. And at the same time, he does still exercise his authority in the spiritual realm by not only rebuking these spiritual demons, but silencing them. And what we need to remember, like this is a battleground, right? This is a war, this is opposition. And so Jesus is doing just that. There's a a great little statement by a guy named Trent Butler who wrote a commentary on Luke. He says this, kingdom ministry, kingdom ministry is opposing Satan in all of his guises. He's a tempter. He's a kingdom giver. Now he can't deliver, but he can promise it. He's an adversary. He's a ministry planner, a theology teacher, and evil spirit inhabiting and inhibiting people. So Satan is called the father of lies. He is a deceiver, he's a destroyer, and Jesus is just tackling that head on, opposing it, silencing it, putting it in its place, and establishing his kingdom authority. That ought to be really reassuring to us, 
If you and I are gonna live in the reality of this spiritual battleground that we're in, we need to know that our Messiah, our King, our Savior has authority in that place. We're not relying upon ourselves. We're relying upon him. Now, I love how this ends because you've got Jesus, the Messiah, exerting all of his power and authority, and yet we see his humanity once again in verse 42. And here we see what did and did not propel Jesus in ministry. Look at uh, verse 42. When it was day, so that gives us the indication he's been ministering all night. The sun is coming up and he departs and goes to a desolate place. How about that? The people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So let's break that down a little bit. Here we have Jesus, full of authority, but also completely human. He's probably a little bit tired. Just imagine all that he's been doing relationally, people everywhere, lots of neediness, all that. So when all is said and done, he departs to a desolate place. It's interesting. We're going to get to chapter 5, verse 16, and it says he would withdraw to a desolate place and pray. So the first thing that Jesus does is he prioritizes solitude and personal fellowship with his father. Jesus isn't just running on his own gas. He's relying on the power of the Holy Spirit given him by the Father to do what he's called to do. Now, if that's necessary for Jesus, what do you think might be necessary for us? I mean, if you're gonna really engage in ministry, if you're gonna engage in what God is doing in and around you, you are gonna have to make time for solitude and personal fellowship with your father. But you know what, guys? We are running 100 miles an hour with way more to do than any human being could possibly get done, and we're exhausted. How in the world are we gonna be engaged in ministry to people when we're in that kind of condition? So this is a great confrontation for us from our Lord saying, I withdrew to a desolate place to renew myself in relationship with the Father, you do the same. Make sure that you're guarding that time. And then secondly, he prioritizes his Father's assignment over public attention or accolades. I don't know what the percentages are, but I know all of us to some degree can be prone to people-pleasing, whatever that might look like. So we kind of gravitate to places where we're applauded or affirmed or accepted and all that kind of thing. Aspects of that are okay. But, but when you're trying to follow the assignment of God for your life, it cannot be determined by people's applause. These people loved having Jesus around and we, we learned about Capernaum. So they loved having Jesus around because it made life just better for them, more comfortable for them, like without disease or demons. That's pretty good, right? But Jesus is going, I, I see beyond that. I was sent, he says. 
I was sent to preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other places. Now, who sent him? The Father. So with all of the authority that Jesus has, there is one who has authority over him in this context, and it's God the Father. And that's what he's concerned about. He wants to please his Father. He wants to do what he was called to do as he entered into this place. Uh, John 5, 19 says this, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Once again, a great template for you and for me as we approach ministry. And I realize it feels a little bit mystical But I'm just telling you, you've got God's word, you've got God's spirit, and you've got God's people. That's the place to go to find out where it is God wants you to invest your life. Not to the applause of man. Seek the Lord and ask him to direct you. We get this amazing mission statement and let's kind of couple it with some other things that we've already heard. Um, In 249, do you remember when Mary... And Joseph were trying to find Jesus. Remember when they found him? And you remember he said, where else would I be than in my father's house? So that was a little glimpse. And then last week from Isaiah's scroll, this was in uh, Jeff's message last week, he said, I was anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, Recovery of sight to the blind, liberty for those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus is acknowledging, I came to deliver people from their own sin, from their own life, from their own failings. That's why I'm here. I'm here for proclamation, not performing miracles. The miracles were simply just a demonstration of his authority, a validation of the authority that he had. But that's not why he came. It wasn't for a show. It was to literally transform the lives of broken people. So Jesus comes with good news about a kingdom. It's good news for those who will submit to his kingdom. It's bad news for the spiritual forces of darkness. And we're gonna see this this conflict come again and again and again as we make our way through this gospel. And we're gonna learn a lot from Jesus about how to walk in that in full dependence upon him and the spirit. So let me ask you a a few questions as we uh, try to apply this passage to our own lives. We're, We're not Jesus. We don't have the authority that he has, but we have him. And so here's some questions that I want you to consider for the next few minutes. How responsive are you to the spiritual authority of Christ? See, we saw the the kingdom of darkness obey perfectly. We saw disease, the material world, obey perfectly. So do we respond that way to God's instructions to us? Secondly, how might you need to repent and believe? Uh, go beyond amazement, surprise, curiosity, but a place of repentance and obedience. Is there any place in your life where you need to do that? 
And then lastly, how closely do your priorities and practices match the priorities and practices of Jesus? I mentioned two, solitude and then uh, just a, a complete commitment to the assignment of God. Consider those questions as we uh, ask the question, so what? How might God have you apply this passage to your life this week? All right?